Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Let's pray together and ask that the Holy Spirit would come and lead us and guide us in truth this morning. So, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at the empty tomb, to look at the resurrection of Christ and the, the reality of our, our risen Savior. And we do ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to lead us and guide us into truth, that you give me grace and strength in communicating your word and just set me aside and give us ears to hear. And hearts to understand, Lord, what you would speak to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are here, that you're with us, that you're alive, that you have defeated the grave, that you've conquered sin. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The first day of the week is Sunday for the Jews. It's that way still in Israel. The Sabbath day is Saturday. The work week starts on Sunday. So it's really our Monday. Mary can't come to the tomb until Sunday morning because of the Sabbath, this mandate to rest, this mandate to stay at home as the Jews were were living under that. Jesus hadn't received a proper burial in their minds because they were rushed with the Sabbath coming as he was buried on Friday night. So Mary comes to want to give Christ that proper burial. And she's even approaching the tomb knowing that the stone was rolled over his his grave. Jesus would be buried in a cave with the stone rolled over. And oftentimes we don't take those steps of faith towards Christ because of an obstacle. Now, if it were me and I were Mary, I would kind of go, well, I have no idea how I'm going to roll away this stone, so I'm just going to go ahead and stay at home. But, but not Mary Magdalene. Her love for Christ drove her to the tomb very early in the morning. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Who is uh, Mary Magdalene? Luke tells us in his account that Mary had seven demons possess her and also had infirmities. And so her life was filled with darkness prior to coming to know Christ as their Savior. I personally believe that people aren't demon-possessed without a willful choice on on their part, opening themselves up to the things of, of Satan, similar to how someone opens themselves up to the things of Christ. And so her life was one of darkness. And Jesus comes into her life and casts out those demons, heals her from her uh, infirmities, and Christ means everything to her. Can you imagine how much Jesus meant to Mary Magdalene? Jesus taught us that if we've been forgiven much, we love much. If we've been delivered of much, we, we love much. And so here she comes, and to her surprise, the stone has been rolled away from, from the tomb. Not what she was expecting. You know, imagine going to the grave of someone that you love and that grave has been, been messed with. And so her mind right away begins to spin. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. So we know that to be John, the author of this gospel. He always refers himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You too can refer yourself to the disciple whom Jesus loved, finding your identity in Christ's love. So she comes to Peter, she comes to John, and says they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have have laid him. They've taken Christ out of the tomb. 
We don't know what they've done with the body of Christ. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I love that John records that for all of eternity, right? (laughs) Remember, these guys grew up together on the Sea of Galilee. They're very close friends. And John has to put this uh, detail in. We were running together and then... I put on the burner. (laughs) I left Peter in the dust and I got to the tomb first. It does show us that these guys are real guys. You know, sometimes when we think of the disciples, we think they weren't human. They didn't have struggles. They weren't competitive. They didn't have senses of humor. You know, they're real, real people, right? And and John here is is letting us know that he was the one that got to the, the tomb first. And he's stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. John's personality is one that's more methodical and thoughtful than Peter. So when he comes uh, to the tomb, he's taking in all of the information, and he's analyzing it, he's thinking about it, and he's not quick to just go inside of the tomb. Isn't personality amazing? How God makes us all with very different uh, personalities and And even though we tend to put personalities in different categories, and there's some truth to that, you're an individual, I'm an individual, there's never been anybody like you, there'll never be another person like you, you're you're God's unique design. God uses those personalities for, for his purposes. We see John's methodicalness coming out in his writings, and Peter's different, he's got a different personality in in verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, And he saw the linen cloths lying there. Peter's a man of action. He's going to act first and think later. He's going to speak first and and think later. And sometimes that's to his detriment, but sometimes it's to his benefit, right? So he comes up and he's like, what are you waiting for, John? Let's go in. Let's go into the tomb. Let's go into this cave and, and see what is going on. And he sees the linen cloths lying there. And we get this specific detail about the linen cloths. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So this is one of the proofs that we know that Jesus indeed is the Son of God is because he folded his laundry he, he left the room clean. Guys, no leaving the boxers on the floor in the bedroom, right? So, I don't know. But <laughs> there, there's more to this, isn't there, right? Because if you were going to steal the body of Christ, you wouldn't take off the grave clothes. You, you would just take the corpse with the grave clothes. But here the grave clothes are, are lying. But even more so, what was wrapped around Jesus' head is folded up and placed on top of the grave clothes. This is the first sign of the resurrection. This is the first evidence that Christ's body wasn't stolen, but he was raised from the dead, just like he had predicted that he would come back to life. John sees this, and as he's analyzing the detail, he gets the message in verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. So when John comes in, he sees this, and it registers. It's the aha moment. It's the epiphany. His, his eyes are opened, and he's like, yeah, 
Christ rose from the dead. Jesus told us that he would rise from the dead, and that's exactly what has taken place. And that's given to us in verse 9, for as yet they didn't know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Jesus had very specifically said in Mark 9, verse 31, that he would be killed, and then afterward he would rise on the third day. And the disciples had heard that, but it didn't register with them. They hadn't comprehended that. And it wasn't until this moment that John puts the pieces together and he's like, oh yeah, I didn't know the scripture. It was recorded in the scripture, but but I didn't know the scripture. But now it's crystal clear. Christ is risen from the dead and I believe it. I believe Christ's resurrection. I think we've had this experience with the word of God. It's written in the word. Maybe we've heard the word. Maybe we've read it before. But then something happens in our lives and we get it. There's the epiphany. There's, there's the understanding. We go, that's what that means. And that's what God is teaching me. And that's who God is in my life. Verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own home. So Simon, Peter, and John, they leave the empty tomb. But Mary stood outside the tomb by But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and she wept. She stooped down, and she looked into the tomb. If you're taking notes as we look at the reality of the resurrection, we see that the resurrected Savior gives us comfort from joy. He he takes sorrow, and he gives us comfort, comfort for our sorrow. And Mary's in a place of sorrow because Christ has died. And she's so overcome with her grief, she chooses just to wait at the empty tomb. God oftentimes moves in our lives as we simply wait and we weep. And it's hard to do. Those are two things that are really hard to do. It's really hard to wait. It's much easier to, to take action. And it's hard to weep. It's hard to be broken. And, and Mary's in this place where she's weeping and she's waiting. She stays at the tomb And verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Well, Peter and John were in the empty tomb and they didn't see these two angels. God has something special for Mary Magdalene. He sees the love that that Mary has for Christ and Mary's gonna be the first one to witness the resurrected Savior. And there's things that we miss with dry eyes you know, we can be in the empty tomb, but it's fair to say that Peter's heart and John's heart was not in the same place that, that Mary's heart was at. Mary's going to experience something of the Lord because of where her heart, heart was. And now she, she sees these two angels, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. One of the things that's interesting as we read the gospel accounts is the resurrected Savior is not easy to recognize. It usually takes a few moments before they recognize the the resurrected Savior. So she doesn't even realize that she's talking to Jesus at this moment. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Oh, the love of Mary. She's not even factoring in. This is the dead body weight of Christ. I think there's good evidence to show that Jesus was probably a strong man. He was a carpenter for most of his life. When Peter is falling in the waters of the Sea of Galilee, Scripture says that that Jesus pulled him out with one arm. He did the one-arm curl with Peter, right? There's no way that Mary could carry the dead weight of Christ. But she's not concerned with that. It's like the love of a mother, right? If a mom sees her child hurting or in danger, the mom's not going to go, I can't lift that, or here's this person that's putting my child in danger. I'm not going to be able to, to overcome this person. They'll put themselves at every length to protect their child and to, to save their child. And Mary has this tremendous love for Christ. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Mary recognizes Jesus when Jesus calls her by name. It's at this moment when he specifically says her name, she's like, wait a second, I know that voice. He's called my name before. And the resurrected Savior, he knows us by name. We're not just a number. To the government, we're a number. We're a social security number. As a student, you've got your student ID number. As an employee, you have your employee number. But to God, you're not a number. To God, you're his special creation. He thinks about you more than the sands of the sea. His thoughts towards you are of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. He knows the number of hairs upon your head. He's aware of that. He counts the number of hairs upon, upon your head. He knows when you rise up and when you sit down, the words that you're gonna speak before you say them. There's no place that you can go from his presence and the resurrected Savior calls us by name. Jesus did this for Saul in the book of Acts as Saul's persecuting Christians on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians and Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goats? That's the resurrected Savior revealing himself to Saul and transforming his life. And in this moment, Mary's sorrow gets replaced by joy. And you may be in a place of sorrow. You may be in a place of of difficulty. And to allow the resurrected Savior to come into that midst of your grief, to call you by name, to bring you comfort, to minister to your heart. Verse 17 is so important in the Gospel of John. This is a, a landmark, benchmark verse for us. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and to your God. It sounds harsh at at first when Jesus says, hey, I'm not the hugging type. You know, don't, don't cling to me. Why would he say this? Because it's time for Mary to learn to relate to him on the spiritual and not on the physical. They've 
been very accustomed to walking and talking with Christ, but now the relationship's going to be spiritual. It says, don't cling to me, but go tell your brethren. As I read the gospel accounts, when someone encounters the resurrected Savior, there's always this commission to go tell. The resurrection is such good news that they were to go share it with others. And it's true for us as well. At the end of Matthew 28, we're commissioned, we're sent. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So she's to go tell the disciples that Christ is alive. And this is what she's to say to them. This is the message. I'm ascending to my father and your father. Not just that I'm alive, but I'm going to ascend to my father. And guess what? He's your father. I'm going to ascend to my God and your God. And this is the transformation in relationship that the death and resurrection of Christ brings to us. When you study the Old Testament, they address God as Lord, as Adonai, Yahweh, the all-powerful one. But Jesus brings the disciples, brings us into a father relationship with God, where we're the children of God. Jesus taught the disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven. This is not how they prayed in the Old Testament. For the disciples, they'd be like, wait a second. This is not how we address God. We address God in this this reverence of him being the almighty one. And that's true. But now it's this intimate and personal where he is your father. What Jesus is saying is the relationship that I enjoy with my father as his son, now you get to enjoy that relationship with him as the children of God. The father sent his son so that he could adopt us as children of God. That's the good news of the resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Jesus wanted the disciples to know as he's risen from the dead. Your father, your God, make sure that you declare that to the disciples. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So she comes and declares this message to the disciples. In verse 19, we see peace for fear. The resurrection of Christ replaces our fear with peace. Then the same day at evening, so it's Sunday night, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace be with you. Disciples have locked themselves in, closed the blinds, because they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid they're going to get arrested, maybe get killed like Christ. The resurrected Savior in his glorified body doesn't knock on the door, doesn't use the entrance. He just comes in, teleports, if you would, and he's right in the midst. Could you imagine? You're afraid. You're fearful for your life. You heard this testimony from Mary Magdalene that Christ is alive. And then all of a sudden, the resurrected Savior is right in your midst, right there. And what's Jesus' message to the disciples? Peace be unto you. The resurrection of Christ brings peace into our lives. The death and resurrection of Christ, as we trust the gospel, trust his sacrifice for our sins, it brings us to a place where we're at peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. Our sins have been paid for. Our sins have been covered and and forgiven. There's peace with God. Also, the resurrected Savior brings peace to our situation. How many times in our lives are we in a room of fear? 
It may be a literal room of fear. Or like, I'm not leaving the house. This is where I'm comfortable and I feel safe here and I'm staying here. I've tried to lock the world out. Sometimes it's in our own souls, isn't it? It's, it's in here. It's internally. We're, we're playing defense. We're afraid of what might take place of the, the future and worry and anxiety and depression starts to fill our hearts and our lives. And the resurrected Savior wants to come into that space. That space this morning and say, peace be unto you. I'm alive. And because I'm alive, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear. So is this the guarantee that there's going to be no trial in our lives? Absolutely not. Is this the guarantee that from our perspective, nothing bad's going to happen? No, absolutely not. This is the guarantee that Christ is going to be with us. This is the guarantee that Christ has given us eternal life. And he speaks that peace into the lives of the disciples. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It's very clear from John 20 that Jesus bore the wounds from the cross in his resurrected, glorified body. When we get to heaven, there's going to be something different about Christ's resurrected body than ours. We're going to see him as the lamb that, that was slain. They're able to put their hands into the hand of Christ and feel the nail holes. They're, they're able to examine the wounds of Christ. And Jesus is showing them his hands. He's showing them his sides. And the response of the disciples is they were glad when they saw the Lord. They understood the significance of the sacrifice of Christ for their sin. And Jesus said to them again, peace to you, shalom. Jesus wants them to understand peace. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is quite the statement. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The Father sends the Son to humble himself and come in human flesh, God in human flesh. Jesus living his life as a servant, serving others, putting other people's needs before his own, willing to pay the ultimate price and be the ransom for sin. Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He came to lay down his life. The disciples have watched this day by day, 24-7, for three years. They've witnessed it. They've seen how Jesus has loved people. They've seen how Jesus loves the Father and have been obedient to the Father. They've seen how Jesus shares truth. And so he's saying, as I have been sent into the world, now you are being sent into the world. And he breathed on them. I'm pretty sure Jesus had good breath, don't you? Resurrected Savior, glorified body, and he, he breathes on them. And the Holy Spirit comes inside of them and they receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is in them. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is active but not indwelling believers because of our sin. It's not until Christ's death and resurrection that the Holy Spirit can come and live inside of the hearts and lives of believers. To now, the Bible tells us we're the temple, we're the housing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the power to fulfill this commission to go out and to love people in the name of Jesus. 
Acts chapter one, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts after we finish the, the book of John. Because Jesus promises there in Acts chapter one, and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you shall become witnesses. The, the Holy Spirit is gonna be the power to fuel the life to where we can be the testimony of, of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit, but the purpose, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to be able to be a witness. When we think of the death, the resurrection of Christ, the peace that he brings into our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit, it is for our enjoyment. It is for our benefit. It is for our peace, but it's not just for us to contain. It's not just for for us to enjoy. It's not just this spiritual buffet where we go, oh man, I love Jesus. Jesus in me, Jesus in me. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you so much. The whole purpose of this is Jesus loving us, forgiving us, transforming us so that now he can send us out. One of the things that's taking place is we study hopefully together on the weekends and on Wednesday nights is we're getting encouraged, we're getting equipped, we're getting strengthened to what? To go out. To go out where there's unbelievers, where there's people that don't know Christ as their Savior. And the Holy Spirit wants to give us strength to love our neighbors and our family members and our friends and our coworkers. You're probably thinking of three or four people that don't know Christ as their Savior and God is sending you into their life. And you're going, well, what does that mean? The way that Jesus loved people, the way that Jesus served people, the way that Jesus declared truth to them inside of that, that context, it'll really change the way that we read the Gospels when we go, wow, this is the way that Jesus loves me and this is the way that Jesus is calling me to love others. One of the things that I get excited about is as our culture changes and as our culture does get more spiritually dark, it is more and more unusual to find the love of Jesus Christ lived out at a workplace, lived out in a neighborhood, lived out in a school. So we've got a tremendous opportunity to go out, to be sent out, just as Jesus was sent into this world. And the Holy Spirit will be faithful to strengthen us and empower us. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What is this verse all about? Does this mean that the disciples have the power to forgive sin and to retain sin? I don't think so. Why? Because the context is the resurrection of Christ. The context is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That's what the disciples are going to go out and share and, and declare. So when someone believes the gospel and they trust that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, guess what? Their sins are forgiven and the disciples get to affirm that based on the word of Christ, based on the promise of Christ. God has forgiven your sins, but let's be clear. Who forgives sins? God. He's the only one that has the power to forgive sins, not the disciples, not us. But if someone then rejects the disciples, the disciples would be able to say with confidence from the words of Christ that your sins are not yet forgiven because up until this point you have rejected the gospel. There's one more vignette that's given to us and it's Thomas. And Thomas goes from a place of doubt to faith. The reality of the resurrected Savior is faith for doubt. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. 
Thomas is a twin, so he gets referred to as the twin. When Christ appeared to the disciples in the room, Thomas wasn't there for some reason. Now, there's some meetings that you're really thankful to miss, right? Let's all be honest. At work, you're like, man, I'm sure glad I got out of that meeting, right? But this meeting where Christ revealed himself, I'm sure Thomas was like, I'm so bummed. I'm so bummed I wasn't there. What was he doing? Maybe he was at work. Maybe he was out getting tacos or falafels. I don't know. I don't know what he was doing, but he missed it. And here's Thomas's response. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas says, unless I experience it for myself, unless I see it and actually put my hand into his wounds, I I will not believe. Thomas is expressing doubt here. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. This is a long eight days for Thomas. The other disciples, no doubt, are excited about the resurrection of Christ, sharing this with him. But Thomas continues to wrestle in this place of doubt. Thomas tends to get a bad rap, but I don't know that it's completely warranted. Because at times, we're all going to wrestle with doubts in different shapes, different sizes, different forms. And Thomas has the courage to be authentic about his doubts. There would be a lot of pressure for Thomas to kind of go along with the program at this point, wouldn't it? Just be like, all right, guys, yeah, Jesus is alive. I believe it. And if that's where he was, that would be great. But it's not where he's at. I would much more people be honest with what they're wrestling with than to pretend that they don't have the questions. And just to say, man, I'm really struggling to understand the scriptures. I'm really struggling to believe that it is inspired by God. I'm not sure about the resurrection of Christ. Is there evidence that points to the resurrection of Christ? Because if those questions are there, as they articulate and speak those questions and have the boldness to wrestle through those questions, that's where oftentimes God meets them and they find the answers. So I don't think necessarily we want to be afraid of doubts, but also you don't want doubts to just simply become a closed door. A lot of times people have a few questions about Christ and faith, and then they're like, I'm done, peace out, drop the mic, right? No, so you got some questions. Examine those questions. Look for, look for the answers. Look for uh, the evidence. It's not something where you close the door, but you knock upon the door. Jesus said to ask, to seek, and knock, and you will, you will find. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Boo! Right? He does it again. Comes right in their midst. Says, peace to you. Immediately, Jesus then said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas said. He says, all right, Thomas, I'm going to meet you in your doubts. Go ahead and put your hand into my wounds. Jesus could have looked at Thomas and said, Really? You're doubting? You don't trust these other 10 disciples that are your friends that have walked with you for three years? 
Don't you know that I prophesied that I would rise again from, from the dead? And he could have said, don't touch this. No, 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 don't touch this, right? But instead, he doesn't do that. He doesn't shame Thomas. He doesn't say, how could you? And reaches out his hands and says, this is what you need? Okay, now, now be believing. Don't be unbelieving, be believing. And aren't you thankful for a gracious, loving, risen Savior that meets us in our doubts? That says, okay, you've got doubts, you've got questions, let me meet with you on those. But let's go through those. Or, or talk. I believe that the creator of the universe, our risen Savior, is big enough to handle our doubts. Have a conversation with them. Wrestle with them. Look at, look at the facts. Look at the evidence. In verse 28, And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, he responds in worship. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Gang, that's us. We haven't seen Christ physically, but yet we believe. This doesn't mean that our faith is without evidence. This doesn't mean that our faith is blind. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus gave us the illustration about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit. You can't see the wind, but you can see the evidence of the wind. And so it's not a blind faith, but it is a faith where we haven't physically seen the Lord, but we believe in the Lord. John in verse 30 and 31 concludes the book. This is his conclusion, and you would think the gospel is over. But this shows us that John's a really good preacher because he says, all right, in conclusion, and then he goes on for another chapter. <laughs> Whenever you hear a pastor say, in conclusion, what you need to mentally prepare for is another 15 minutes, right? <laughs> another chapter. But here's the summary statement of the Gospel of John. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John only records seven miracles in this gospel. Of all of the miracles that are Christ did, he focuses only on seven. Of all of the teachings of Christ, he focuses on seven I am statements. He's very purposeful. He's very systematic in what he recorded. And the reason he recorded this information is so that you would believe. And that through believing that Jesus is the Christ, which means Messiah, the anointed one, the prophesied one from the Old Testament, the Son of God, that you would have life through his name, that you'd have eternal life, that you would have abundant life. It's not through works. It's not through efforts on ours that we try to merit God's favor, but it's belief in Jesus. And as we believe in him, then we have life through his name. My prayer for us this weekend is that the reality of the resurrection would impact our hearts and our lives, that we would live in light of an empty tomb. You know what I really liked about this weekend? Is I got to teach on the resurrection when it wasn't Easter. I love teaching on the resurrection at Easter. It's a great time of celebration, great time to reach out to those that don't know, know the Lord as their Savior. But why it's fun to teach on it in August is because Christ is alive every day of the year, <laughs> right? And we get to celebrate and live in light of the empty tomb. So what does 
the resurrection of Christ mean for us as believers? Well, it means that we're new creations in Christ. That the old man has been buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. When we celebrate baptism next Sunday, it's symbolic of what's already happened when a person believes in Jesus as their Savior. All of our sin, past, present, future, buried with Jesus. And it stays there. It's nailed with Christ to the cross, buried with Christ. And then we're risen in newness of life. We're we're alive in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. What the resurrection means for us as believers is that we're forgiven. You're completely forgiven by by God if you've responded in faith to his death and, and resurrection. The power of sin has been broken in your life. Before you knew Christ as your Savior, you had no chance to stop sinning. But now, because of the resurrection of Christ and your relationship with him, the power of sin has been broken in your life. And I know what you're thinking and what you're saying. Well, it sure doesn't feel like it, right? I'm still struggling with sin. I still commit sin. But have you ever thought about what would your life look like currently if you didn't know Christ as your savior? I mean, what kind of darkness would we be involved in? Christ has broken the power of sin in our lives. Peter writes about the resurrection and says, because Christ is living, risen through the resurrection of Christ, we have living hope. God has begotten us again to living hope. Our understanding of hope usually is a, a wish or a whim. Like, oh, I hope to get a raise this year, or I hope the Broncos have a better season, right? That's really, we don't know how that's going to turn out. could go either way. But a biblical perspective of hope is a confident expectation of coming good. That God is good and that he does good. Not that he always does things our way, but that he is working in our lives. And I know that this is moving toward, towards heaven. And our hope is alive because Christ is alive. And I've got to tell you this week, for me, the resurrection of Christ has really hit in in a deeper way. I found myself in a very challenging week, and I didn't anticipate it to, to be that way. And uh, I got a call on Monday morning uh, from my mom, and um, my dad has Parkinson's disease. And I'll warn you, this could be a little hard for me to get through. It stirs me. Um, and he's been battling car- Parkinson's for seven, eight years, and it's, it's really taken a toll on him, especially in this last year. Uh, and he found himself in the hospital on, on Monday. The paramedics had to come and get him. And this round of the Parkinson's has affected his memory. And it's very quick. So Sunday night, I talked to him on the phone. And his memory was very fluent and just the normal conversations that I really enjoy uh, with dad. But by Monday morning, uh, he's lost a lot of his, his memory for, for the time being. And he's continued in this uh, confused state. And it may be dementia. A lot of times that comes with uh, Parkinson's and the, and the doctors said he, he may come out of this uh, or this may be the, the new normal. And as I was spending time with my dad in the hospital uh, Monday afternoon and when he got out of the hospital on, on Wednesday, and, just, and this has been happening for some time, but, but watching his body uh, just get more and more frail, you know, and now it affects his mind. And I, I was grieving a bit there as the shock of this on Monday. 
And I'm sitting there in the hospital and sitting on the stool next to his bed. And in this confused state, you know, you try to figure out, you know, what he knows and what he doesn't know and what he's aware of. Uh, He reached out his hand and he just, he wanted me to hold his hand. And the thing that I felt in that moment was it felt like my son's hand. Now, obviously, it's a lot bigger than my son Wyatt's hand, but throughout Wyatt's life, he's only seven, he oftentimes just reaches his hand out to hold Dad's hand. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He just, he's just like, Dad, you know, hold my hand. And we'll be walking, and Wyatt will oftentimes just put out his hand to, to this day. And as I was looking at my dad's hand and I was holding his hand, I began to think of the resurrection of Christ. And Parkinson's doesn't have the final word in my dad's life. The resurrection of Christ does. And because Christ is alive, my dad loves the Lord and believes in the Lord and trusts in the Lord. Someday, he's going to get a resurrected body. My dad's going to get a body that has never been affected by Parkinson's disease. And he's going to be in a completely glorified state. And that brought me so much comfort. It brought me a ton of comfort to, to reflect on. And go, yeah, I am so thankful that death has not won, that Jesus has won, and he is victorious. One of the things with the resurrection that Jesus declares to us is he says, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. And there in the hospital and as he got home on Wednesday, I felt the presence of our resurrected Savior. I know I'm not the only one who's going through difficulty. I realize that. And I know that I'm not the first person to walk with a parent through something like Parkinson's and and dementia. And I know that you have your own story of pain and your own story of difficulty. But isn't it neat how Jesus revealed himself to individuals? He revealed himself to Mary. He revealed himself to Thomas. He revealed himself to the disciples. If we were going to think of the unveiling of the resurrected Savior, we would probably rent the Pepsi Center, you know, get the, get the biggest building that we possibly could in Colorado, give it tons of hype, lots of social media, right? And here comes Christ out on the stage with lights and smoke and make this huge deal out of it. And Jesus, he rose from the dead and he revealed himself to Mary. And how simple is that? But how beautiful is that? So I hope that you know whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, that Christ is risen. Your circumstance doesn't have the final word. Our risen Savior has the final word. So we're going to prepare our hearts and take communion this morning. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you that you're risen. And because you're risen, we have great hope in the midst of disease and even in the midst of death, in the midst of hardship. And Lord, I pray that you would really take what we've studied today and put it deep into our hearts. And as we celebrate communion this morning, that 
it would be meaningful, that it wouldn't simply be a tradition that we go through, but that we would sit at your feet and reflect on your sacrifice, reflect on your resurrection. And